Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Annie Grace, the author of This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life. Annie has had a very unique life. She grew up in a one-room cabin without running water or electricity in the mountains of Colorado. Then, at age 26, she became the youngest vice president in a multinational corporation. But this success led to excessive drinking and the possibility that she might lose everything. Annie recognized her problem, but chose to approach it in an entirely new way. She made a commitment to herself and her family to learn everything she could about alcohol, how it affected her, and what the truth was. What she discovered in her research was so profound that she wrote it up into a PDF, published it online, and within two weeks it had been downloaded 20,000 times. That led to the publication of her book, This Naked Mind. Annie's program has been featured in Forbes, the New York Daily News, the Chicago Tribune, all over. She now runs the website The Alcohol Experiment, and This Naked Mind. She's got a podcast. She does it all. Annie, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. The good place to start usually is just who you are and how you came to be kind of doing all of this, writing this book, your podcast, your websites, your apps that you're building and everything that you're doing. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, Andy. I appreciate it. It's really fun to be here. So my journey was actually, it started very personally. I was 25 years old and I kind of had, you know, taken alcohol, left it. Like it wasn't a big deal in my life at all. And um, I got married and we moved to New York City. And although I could, you know, I had not really been drunk very many times. I hadn't really drank much in college. It was, I was kind of, and, and in college, it's so interesting because it's depending who you're hanging out with, really. Like it's so influential what you're yeah. doing. And so I just happened to fall into a crowd of people that weren't really drinking that much. So I wasn't really drinking that much. And then right. we moved to New York City. And I remember my first day on the job there, I was working for a huge bank. And they're like, we're going to take you out for happy hour. And so we went out for happy hour and I was like, well, what am I going to order? I don't even know. So I was like, <laughs> but I've watched Sex in the City, so I'll order a Cosmo. And that's a good idea, um, which is not really what they drink in New York City, even back then. And it was very awkward and funny, but it ended up that it, it cost 25 bucks. And this is like in 2006. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to spend my money drinking. So I just stopped going to happy hour. Yeah. Then... I got promoted a few times. I was working at a different company. We'd been there a little while. And my boss was like, hey, like, why aren't you coming to happy hour? I was like, oh, I don't really drink. And he's like, no, that's not what it's about. Like, it's really about the networking and the showcasing your ideas. So you need to, you need to show up. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So I had this method and I was like, all right, I'm going to drink a glass of wine. 
a glass of water and a glass of wine and a glass of water so I never get too tipsy. And um, sometimes I would even go back like fully aware, feel like I was getting too tipsy and I go into the bathroom to throw up the glass of wine just so I could drink another one so I could keep my tolerance going. Like it was so important for me to be with all these, you know, older executives and just be part of this whole thing that I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, be really methodical about this. But alcohol does what alcohol does. And over the next decade, you know, drinking at work started to be drinking at home. And fast forward, I was very successful in my career. I was now global head of marketing in charge of 28 countries flying around the world all the time, you know, visiting up to 20 countries a year. And I was drinking close to two bottles of wine a night and uh, being on these international first class flights, like the, the, you know, what time I would leave New York city at like, you know, 8 p.m., but then I would land in London at like 6 a.m., but it was really 2 a.m., so I was like, well, I'll just have another drink in the lounge where I go shower before I go into the office, and it's just like everything started getting blurred. So I did what most yeah. people would do, is I was like, all right, this isn't fun anymore. I'm going to just drink less, and I didn't find it easy. I actually found that very much like, you know, all the science shows you now about going on a diet. If you go on a diet, you actually gain more weight. Like, that's for most people, the majority of people, yet for me, that's what it was like. It was like I was going on this alcohol diet, which ultimately over the years had me drinking more and just not have peace around it. I talk about it in my book about cognitive dissonance, like both this desire, like I want to pick up a drink because it's going to relax me. And I don't want to pick up a drink because I promised myself I wasn't going to. Yeah. And, you know, we talk so much about like how much external conflict hurts. Like if you just see somebody fighting, it hurts or see it on TV, your like heart rate can go up. But we don't talk about this internal war and how much that can affect your well-being because you're just always fighting with yourself. And, and that's where I was. And then something really radical happened to me in hindsight. It didn't feel radical at the time, but I was coming home from Heathrow in London. I was, I was flying back to the States. I was coming back to my husband and my two little boys. And I was just so hungover. And I'd had a few drinks that morning in the hotel bar. I'd actually asked for a mimosa because that was totally kosher to drink first thing in the morning. But she's like, totally right. Yeah, it's fine. Mimosa. Bloody Mary or a mimosa. You're, you're not an alcoholic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like one of those invisible lines that somehow we've convinced <laughs> ourselves of. But the waitress, she's like, oh, I'm not going to open the whole bottle of champagne because it will go flat. And I was like, she's like, unless you're planning to drink the whole thing. And I was like, oh, no, 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 never, no. So I was like, okay, fine. And she's like, but I could make you a screwdriver, which is basically vodka and orange juice. And that was another one of those lines. Uh, like, I hadn't drank hard alcohol first thing in the morning. Right. But I was like, okay, yes. And so I had two of those. And I was sitting in the airport just feeling like, what am I doing? You know, like what is happening? And, and feeling really hopeless because feeling like all these rules I tried to put in place, it wasn't working. It, and it was actually seeming to make things worse and, and definitely making my internal fight worse. And so... I had this moment of like, why is it different? And all of a sudden this question came, it's like, why, why is it that I used to be able to take or leave it? And now it feels like it's so important to relax or to have a good time or to go on a sales call or to you know, do any of these things, what changed? And so that question, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna get off this crazy roller coaster of making and breaking rules to myself. And I'm just gonna answer that question. And I was like, I'm going to let it be as long as it takes, but I'm going to stop trying to stop drinking. I'm going to stop trying to cut back. I'm just going to drink what I want, but I'm going to promise myself two things. Number one is that I'm going to have total compassion for myself because this beating myself up continuously is not working. It is not the solution and it's just making it worse. And number two, I am going to find out why. I'm going to understand this at least. And so I started just really, you know, something 
close to your heart, Andy, would be I just started to dive into the science. And I made a list of all of the reasons that I drank. And then I asked my friends all the reasons that they drink. And I had this huge list. And I just started going through them one by one. Like, okay, I drank to relieve stress. Is it true? Is that what it does in the body? I drink to loosen up or combat social anxiety. Is it true? Is that really the outcome of alcohol? You know, I, I drink to have a good time. Is it true? Is that really, you know, the outcome? And over and over, like what the science says is like, wow, no, no, and no, and, and really no. And actually it makes that worse. Like your, your happiness levels, your well-being levels, no, alcohol really negatively impacts those. But you don't see it in the short term, right? And so I started to see all this stuff and it was probably close to a year later that I just told my husband, I was like, you know what, if you want to drink with me again tonight's night, because I think I'm done drinking after tonight. And he was like, what? Who are you? I was like, yeah, I just don't see the point anymore. And so we split a bottle of wine and, and that was really it. Like I, I was like, you know, like I just, and I say, I say I drink as much as I want, whenever I want. I just haven't wanted to have a drink in you know, almost six years now. And wow. it's, from that place. And, and since then, I, I've now realized that actually why this is so successful. And now, you know, I've written two books about it and all this sorts of stuff is like, because positive emotion, a researcher at Stanford just this year, BJ Fogg, he's doing research on like what correlates with habit change. And he found out pretty much definitively that it's not time. It's not the 60 days or the 21 days or any of that stuff. It's actually emotion. So my emotion about this change in my life was like, ah, don't need that. Don't want it. Better off without it. Good for me. Yeah. Whereas usually when somebody's looking to make a change in their relationship with alcohol, it's like, oh, poor me. This sucks. Like, oh. I guess I'm going to have to limit myself. You know, I can only have one tonight. And yeah, right, right, right. It's like the coveted thing that you're not letting yourself have up there. Totally. Yeah. So that kind of sets you up for failure. It really does. And, and of course, I didn't know that at the time. I mean, I've been trying that way for many years and it hadn't worked. And so it has been really different for me. In fact, I have a group of five college friends and one of them had gotten sober years before. And when I stopped drinking, you know, another one of our friends came up and she's like, it's so different with the two of you. Like it's, you know, I don't feel bad drinking around you. I don't feel guilty for it. Like, why is it so different? And I was like, well, because I don't feel sorry for myself, you know, because I'm really, I'm not triggered by your drinking. I'm not, you know, I'm not worried about it. I don't have to project that on you. Like, it's not a big right. You're not like gazing with longing at the drink in her hand as she like takes a sip of it. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny too. I, I think it's more like, you know, becoming a vegan or something where you're like, yeah, I really want to do this. And so I'm not going to be drooling over your hamburger if I'm just heading not to eat meat. Right? right. But usually people don't want to do it. They don't want to make that choice. They feel like they have to because of a series of unfortunate events and, yeah. and then the whole mentality is different. So anyway, I had all of this research and I just kind of put it into a PDF and I shared it in a few places and I didn't even know, you know, it was very dirty, very, you know, full of typos, but I was like, other people need this. And so I shared it in a few places and 20,000 people downloaded it in two weeks. And yeah, it was crazy. I started getting letters all over the world. Like, oh my gosh, this is what was missing. This is what I need to do. This is amazing. And so, um, somebody said, Hey, you should really make this a book. Yeah. And it was actually an email and I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And so I started actually properly reading other books, like taking other, you know, views into account. I think we've read probably a lot of the same ones and 
um, and actually trying to figure out how to like streamline some of this research into an actual narrative. And yeah. uh, so then I, you know, ended up self-publishing this naked mind. And then it, it went again, same thing. It, it just started really gaining momentum, a life of its own. And so it's now um, traditionally published. It actually went through a whole bidding war with the type top five publishers and nice. ended up going with Penguin Random House and uh, wrote another book, which is the 30 day alcohol experiment, which is just like dip a toe. You don't have to be ready. You don't have to change anything. Just try it out. And yeah. And yeah. So that's, that's the long and short of it. What about the idea that alcohol is an acquired taste? You talk about your French friend, Yanni, whose parents encouraged her to have sips of wine at dinner from the age of eight, much like your parents encouraged you to eat the spinach on your plate. And, you know, they kept encouraging her. Hey, I know you don't like it now, but, you know, one day you will just keep trying it. And now she does. So they were they were right, right? Yeah, no, she loves she loves to drink, um, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's interesting. Like, uh, you know, if you think of an acquired taste, uh, it, first of all, if if most of us think, and I, I've surveyed so many people about this, but if you think back to your first drink, most people would be like, oh yeah, I remember spitting it out. I remember not liking it. I remember choking right. it down just to fit in. Yeah. Um, now there are some exceptions. I had a friend; she literally had Malibu and Coke, and that was her first drink, and so it was like okay. perfectly fine because. Clearly just loaded with sugar. And so she couldn't even taste the alcohol. But also alcohol itself, like ethanol, like the thing that makes alcohol alcoholic, tastes horrible. Like you couldn't even probably get it down without puking. You'd have an instant gag reflex. And why you'd have an instant gag reflex is because your body would say, that's poison. Get that out of my system immediately. So we have to dumb it down with all of this stuff. We have to make sure our beers only are like, you know, three to 8% alcohol because otherwise we couldn't physically ingest it. And even beer though, to a child doesn't taste good. Even wine to a child doesn't taste good. And I think one way to look at this acquired taste is like, it's a little bit of an immunity to the taste. It's your body saying, okay, we're doing this anyway. So I'm going to make it less painful for you. So my brother, he has a goat farm and I pull up to his, we visit him just a few weeks ago and we pull up in there and we're like, well, here we are. You know, it's so intense, the smell. Yeah. And he and his family, they don't even notice it. Like <laughs> they've acquired the taste for goat yeah. shit. To be honest with you, like there's not even a, um, they don't notice that they're surrounded by goats. Yeah, right. But for us. It's very noticeable. <laughs> yeah, right. Probably from miles away, coming down the road, it's <laughs> aware of that. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. We do that with so many things. I think that the human body is very good at habituating to things. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I think that's just such a good point, And it's so true. And uh, it's something I hadn't really thought about, too. But and this is something, you know, that's happening, I think, during the teenage years. People are having their first experiences with alcohol. And if this is your mentality that it's an acquired taste and you know, it's probably not going to taste that good at first, but you should just muscle it down and, you know, be cool because, you know, eventually you'll like it and grownups do and you see it as that way, then it's like you want to quickly acquire it as fast as possible so you can be like the adults and be like the cool people who seem to be drinking it so effortlessly. It really struck me reading your book that a lot of this stuff is so important for teenagers because we already have false beliefs about alcohol in our teenage years and even as we're taking our very first sips of alcohol we 
already have this whole constellation of attitudes and beliefs about, you know, what it is and what it means. And that really, really influences the drinker that we become, how soon we start and the type of drinking that we do. One of the first things that you touch on is this idea of the physical flaw theory. So what is that and why is that a problem even for people who don't view themselves as alcoholics? So, you know, a lot of our programming, the things that we believe without even realizing we believe them, has just come by default around alcohol. So one of those things is that there's a subset of the population that are alcoholics. And if you're not an alcoholic, then you don't necessarily need to worry about your drinking. And if you are an alcoholic, it's probably genetic. It's probably a addictive personality. There's probably some sort of physical flaw in your makeup that makes you this type of person that can't drink responsibly. But the science disagrees with that completely. Like there's, there's no good science for that. I mean, even, even the people who have researched this the most, you know, neuroscientists, um, say, yeah, you know, there's genes that are loosely correlated, but you can't identify a certain gene. And, you know, that's definitely much more to do with emotional events in somebody's life um, or, or different levels of exposure. And I think the easiest way for me to explain this is like comparing diabetes type one and type two. People are pretty familiar with this, right? Yeah. In one type, if you're born with it, you have to have insulin from pretty much day one because there's something physically wrong in your body that your body does not pr produce enough. In the other type, you have had so much exposure externally to these different types of toxins that you have created uh, imbalance right. and therefore you need to still treat it the same way with insulin, but it's very different, right? And, and we've been putting alcohol in this, this kind of born with it, physical flaw, like something's wrong with a certain subset of people. And the problem with that is that it encourages, and this was my story, my friend actually came up to me after going and getting sober with AA and I said, well, I drink as much as you drink. And she said, but Annie, you're not an alcoholic. I learned I was born this way. Now she learned this because somebody told her this at a meeting, like there was no science behind it, but right. for her, she could make much more peace with the idea she had to stop drinking by believing she was born that way. And for me, as this person who did not consider myself an alcoholic, still don't, was at this point, we're like, well then, okay, I guess I'm just going to keep drinking because either I'm an alcoholic and I stop or I just carry on. And that's really where the alcohol experiment came from. It's like, shouldn't there be something in the middle? <laughs> like, like, why is it that we, and this is true in, in, by the way, if you go to your doctor about your drinking, it's the same sort of thing. So you go to your doctor mm -hmm. about your drinking, start to tell them about it and they're like, oh, okay. Well, either they say, A, no big deal because they know they're actually drinking more than you or at least as much. And so they yeah. encourage you that you're fine. Or they say, B, oh, that is sounding like a big deal. You are doing stuff like really cross the line. And they say, you need to go get sober and go to AAA. And often like people come to their doctor when imagine your wrist hurts, right? And you're like, oh, my wrist kind of hurts. And so you go to your doctor and you're like, this is a problem. Like, this, this is starting to impact my life. Like I can't do all the things I used to do. I have pain. And your doctor says, oh, well, you know, either you have to live with it or we're going to amputate at the arm. <laughs> Those are your options. So what are you going to do? And so you're going to walk out and you're going to live with it, of course, because amputating at the arm, getting sober, going to meetings for 90 days and then the rest of your life, who wants to amputate at the arm, right? And so I think it really does affect people who are questioning their drinking. It doesn't give us a safe place to land. And for everybody else, 
it lets us just think that, hey, we're fine because I don't have a problem, so I can just keep drinking because I'm not one of those people, those problem people. So it, it doesn't work for anybody, you know? It's a, a flawed way of thinking about it, I think. It's a, a mentality that doesn't serve us, but it's so pervasive. It also really perpetuates this kind of like black and white mentality, which by the way, isn't true. Okay, so what else in the world? Tell me one other thing that 100% is success, but 99.9% .9 is, is failure, <laughs> yeah, right? right? Like if you're trying to run and you run 365 days a year, but if you miss a few days, you're, you're not a runner, like yeah. that doesn't make any sense, right? But here we're saying the only answer to anybody questioning their drinking is sobriety. That's not actually true for a lot of people, especially when they go through my work and they realize that alcohol really isn't doing what they thought it was. They do choose not to drink it anymore, but they don't actually even choose to be sober as much as they just choose not to drink. Like they don't even take on that identity of a sober person. Um, but I think it's really interesting because that black and white thinking of like, okay, number one, if you have a drink, you're no longer sober, you failed, like just yep. perpetuates the whole thing. It's so loaded with shame. It's so loaded with right. stigma. And by the way, it's just not true for most people. You know, according to the CDC, 90% of excessive drinkers are not chemically dependent, right? So these are people that are drinking in excess far over the recommended guidelines, but they're not chemically dependent. They're not going to go into withdrawals or have any of these things. Yet we, we like, it's like we have a hammer, so everything's a nail and we're just, we're just pounding the same message. Well, then if you even question your drinking, your only option is to just go ahead and get sober with, with AA, which it, it's not relevant. It, it actually turns people off all the time. I mean, for me in my life, and, and that's really where I can speak to with most authority, is I probably started questioning my drinking six years before I actually started to do anything about it because the question wasn't would I be a bit happier drinking less? The question was, am I an alcoholic? Yeah. And that question is terrifying. We're here with Annie Grace, the author of This Naked Mind, talking about alcohol and drinking and its role in our society and our families. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Children who have been given alcohol by their parents are much more likely to have a problem with alcohol in their own lives. If you really are serious about changing your children's behavior, modeling it is number one. They're not going to ever come to me again. So, so I kind of framed it like that with them. And that's something that works for me. Obviously, people can take that or leave that. But for me, it's like really means, and it means that my son comes to me with some things you wouldn't believe. And I tell my friends like, oh my gosh, he came to me about this video that him and his friends were watching and it was totally inappropriate. And like, he didn't know what all these words mm. meant. And he called me at midnight from wow. his friend's house, from the condo that they were at. He called me from the bathroom to ask me. And he knew that was because he wouldn't get in trouble. And now he has information that's actually true. And I answer all his questions rather than either having to guess at it or having to find out things that aren't true from his friends. And I get to put like my slant on it, but he would never do that if it felt like I was going to be like, why are you guys watching that type of stuff? Who's the parents? I'm calling like, what's happening? Like, why are you on your own? Why are you unsupervised? All the rules in the world don't take the place of a relationship. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. 
you get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.